We talked about uh, the Christmas sort of narrative, the Christmas story, if you will, as a destination story, uh, that Jesus chose to make earth his destination so that we can make heaven our destination. And I really thought it would be good to follow up that with, well, how that's, how's that going to happen? You know, how, how do believers uh, get to heaven? What, what's the mechanics of all of that? And also, to what, a certain extent, when will that happen? I don't mean when in terms of uh, dates, but when in terms of the end-time events, the series of end-time events, uh, will that take, take place? Um, when we look at the books of Daniel and Revelation, uh, both of which we've done fairly recently in the church history, we did Daniel a couple of years ago and Revelation, um, we see that God has given us a detailed outline of, of future events. And um, that's what I've sort of given you this, this chart for, is to sort of outline those for you. Um, a lot of Christians love to focus on those end-time events, right, and look at those things. And maybe, maybe and sometimes, too, in, we can get in an unhealthy way because we're focusing on the wrong events in terms of maybe we're looking for evidences that might help us pinpoint um, uh, the tribulation or who the Antichrist will be, or those kinds of things. When uh, um, Obama was elected president of the United States, I can't tell you how many phone calls our church received warning us that we had just elected a president that was the abomination that causes desolation, right? So people who have been so utterly focused on who's the Antichrist, who's the Antichrist, the minute we get a president that has a name that might resemble something like abomination, boy, we, we might have the Antichrist, So we have to be careful. When we read the New Testament, it seems to me the predominant hope that believers are to hold on to, the event that they're looking forward to, is the return of Christ. That's the thing we're looking forward to. And I'm going to take you through a couple of passages here just to get us uh, started. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, Paul says, "...for our citizenship is in heaven." from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So Paul is telling us, yeah, we have a citizenship in heaven. We read this verse last week, actually, at the end. And because that's true, we eagerly wait for Jesus. He also writes to a young pastor here in um, Titus 2, 11 to 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That's Jesus. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So while we are living a certain way, right, and Jesus is teaching us how to live, all the while we're actually looking for his appearing. We're looking for him coming to take us. And James gets in on the action as well. James chapter 5, verses 7 to 8. He says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, we could do a lot of passages, but for the sake of time, I just chose three today to show us that the New Testament, and these are all from different writers as well, uh, seems to encourage believers to look for the coming of the Lord. And James adds that even the coming of the Lord is at hand. Did you notice that? 
That mean, means that his return is, is imminent. Um, I'm going to take you through a few passages that sort of give us that picture. In Matthew 24, verse 42, Jesus himself says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And then two verses later, he says the same thing. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then the very next, next chapter in Matthew 25, verse 13 He says it again, watch therefore you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. In fact, it's all through those two chapters there that Jesus says over and over again, you don't know the hour, but to be watching, to be ready. That is the idea. The idea is eminence. Jesus can come at any time. In fact, the other gospel writers write the same thing in Mark chapter 13, verses 32 to 33. He says, but at that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the sun. And that's mind-boggling, right? That the sun doesn't even know the day of his return. But only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. What's the role of the believer then? Take heed. Listen to what I've said. Watch and pray. For what? The return of the Lord. We're waiting for him. Luke also speaks of it in chapter 12, verse 40. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And when you read the whole New Testament, the New Testament ends with that wonderful book, Revelation. And the very last chapter, chapter 22, ends with the same idea. Chapter 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So do you see how we have this theme in the New Testament that Jesus is going to come, but he's coming quickly. And the, the New Testament then seems to indicate that the return of Jesus can happen that at, at any time. And for that to be true, we've got to conclude this, that we're not waiting for anything else to happen before he can return. And for that, I want to take you to that, that chronology of eschatology. I know that's a fun, fun, that's a fun workplace thing you can throw around this week. I have my chronology of eschatology. Eschatology is just two words, last study. So it's a study of the last things or the last days or the end times. So that's all it is. Eschatology is a fancy word to say. It's a study of the last times or the end days. All right. So, so looking at this handout, I just want to walk through this now. Um, it's quite extensive. We don't have time to go through all of it. But you can see, and you can remember back to our Daniel study, you have that wonderful chapter in chapter 9 that has the uh, 70 weeks of Daniel, right? And there's 70 weeks of seven-year periods. You see on your chart, you have 69 weeks of Daniel. That leads us up to the cross of Jesus. And then there's that 70th uh, week, but it comes later. In between that cross and in between number one there with that giant arrow going up is what? The church age. Do you see that? So if you want to know where you are, folks, and where I am, just draw a little stick figure right there, okay? You are in the church age. That's where we exist. That's where we live. That's Revelations chapter 1, 2, and 3. If you remember in part of the Revelation study, it actually outlines for us, right? Right what is, what's not yet, and what's to come, right? It's an outline of, of, of these things. So here is what is. We are in the church age. This chart helps us see the five major events that make up the end times. Do you see that? Number one, you have the rapture. Number two, the tribulation. Number three, the second coming. Number four, the millennium. Number five, new heaven and new earth. Now we're going to go through that slowly here, really briefly. 
Um, we're going to talk in depth about the rapture. And I know there's different views on the rapture, but just for the sake of time today, um, we're placing it there in the front of the tribulation. But if you look at number two, the tribulation, that's the, uh, that seven-year period you see, and it's got the little dotted lines in the middle. It's dividing that seven years in half, okay? Well, I have a slide to kind of like take us into that time frame here a little bit closer. So here we have, if you want to just kind of focus in on that um, seven years of tribulation, all right, the next slide shows us that what we're looking for here is this. In Daniel chapter 9, we talk, it talks about the Antichrist that will emerge. He will make a peace pact with people. In fact, if you go to Revelation, right, and you have the beginning of um, the judgments, right, the beginning scroll judgments that are coming out, the first rider is on a white horse, he carries a bow and wears a crown, right? But no arrows. Do you remember that from our Revelation study? He's able to conquer without a weapon. He has a bow, but no arrows. It's the Antichrist. This is a man who will emerge and make a peace treaty. Um, and so will look like a peaceful ruler. He will conquer. Uh, many believe he'll make a peace pact in the Middle East where there's much conflict. Um, and so for three and a half years, it will look as if this person is, is just a genius, Right? Um, he's a Nobel Peace Prize winner, perhaps, right? And he's made all this peace. You go to the next slide. Halfway through that period of time, Daniel 9 again tells us that that person will reveal himself for who he really is, that he is the Antichrist. Because what's coming? What's the blue arrow? The real Christ. So you have an Antichrist before the real Christ. You have a supposed Christ before the real Christ. And this middle period is where he sets himself up to be God and demands to be worshipped as such. That is the Antichrist. In fact, many believe that the Temple Mount will once again have a, a temple for the Jews somehow, where they can coincide maybe with the Dome of the Rock, which is currently there for the Muslims, and the daily sacrifices will be reinstituted. That's during the three and a half years of peace. But at this point, Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation that will be set up in that temple. And that is basically this, an idol that is set up of this man to be worshipped as God. So instead of worshipping the true God of the universe, he's demanding to be worshipped uh, as God. And so when he reveals himself, that's when real hell on earth begins, because he begins to persecute the Jews, right? He begins to demand worldwide worship, and that's when you have all the crazy stuff that you see in, in Revelation with uh, the mark of the beast and all those different, um, different things. And that will continue on, if you continue to the next slide, Till he is destroyed. And he is dis destroyed <clears throat> at the end when Jesus returns. So Christ returns at the Battle of Armageddon. And no, it, it's not a movie that stars Bruce Willis. It's, it's an actual battle. Uh, Jesus will return uh, with his saints. He'll defeat his enemies. He'll defeat the Antichrist. He'll defeat the beast. And then he will set up his millennial reign on earth. And during that thousand-year reign on earth, so that's number four on your chart, Satan is bound. Satan is not destroyed, but he's bound for a thousand years. Jesus rules here on earth for a thousand years. That's number four. And then at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released. And he's allowed to go and, and deceive the nations of the world once again. Because over the thousand-year period, people have propagated, right? We have a big population again. And um, the children of the people who entered that millennial kingdom are led astray by Satan because it shows the true heart of man that even with Jesus physically present, reigning on earth, people are still going to choose 
to worship something other than Christ. And so Satan will lead a new rebellion. Jesus will defeat that rebellion, and Satan will be cast into the lake of fire along with all those that he has deceived, all his enemies. And number five, then, is the new heaven and the new, new earth, and that takes us on into the eternal state. So there's the five major events of the end times, and we'll refer to this a couple um, times. And here's my point of kind of looking at this. If the New Testament is constantly warning us to be ready and to be watchful for the return of Christ, to return to the Lord, how can we really be uh, uh, watchful for him if there's many, many, many events that need to take place before that? Um, yes, you see the return of Christ number three there, but, but how does that really work? Well, that obvious visible return of Christ before that millennial reign certainly is known as the second coming of Christ. But I believe, as do all the Calvary chapels, that there is a secret return of Christ called the rapture of the church. And that is where number one is placed for you. And yes, there are um, views uh, that place that rapture at different places. The, you can be at the front of the tribulation. Some place it in the middle of that tribulation. Some place it right before the second coming of Christ, that you literally go up and do a U-turn and come right back down. I'm not going to get into all of those things, although I will be commenting as I go through here um, as to why I think the rapture of the church um, happens at the beginning of the tribulation. That's known as a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Uh, the word rapture is harpazo. We'll look at it later because it comes from 1 Thessalonians 4.17, and it means to snatch or to, to seize. Um, and so we'll look at that a little bit later. So you have today a lot of people doomsayers who are telling the church that what next event they need to be looking for then is because the G Jesus is coming at the second coming, they need to be looking for the tribulation, and they need to be preparing for it. So today you can go online and you can buy your very own tribulation survival kit. You can. Um, tribulation survival water, <laughs> tribulation survival canned goods, um, blankets, you name it, it's a whole kit to help you, believer, to get through the tribulation. Now, I, I am sure they mean well. I just imagine that somewhere in Scripture we would have someone else telling us to wait for that and prepare for that, right? Paul saying, okay, so Jesus is going to come, but not before all this junk happens, and make sure you're ready for that. So, you know, um, you know buy blankets, you know, sell your house, dig a hole. I, I don't, you know, you, you just don't have those things. And I, I think... The reason is because they believe that that's the real next event on the prophetic timetable, but it's not. It is the rapture of the church because the New Testament um, is very convincing um, in terms of its, its impression upon believers to be waiting for Jesus. That's what we're waiting for. And there are three predominant passages that are used to support the rapture. We're going to look at all three. Two of them we're going to look rather briefly through. And then one we'll really dig into. So turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 is the first one. We're going to go to Jesus' own words. This should be fairly fresh in your minds because we went through John chapter 14, oh, I think back in June. So it's not been that long. John chapter 14. <clears throat> All right, look at verses 1 to 3. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, to refresh your memory on this, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples where he washed their feet, right? And he has just dropped a shocking truth bomb on them in chapter 13, verse 33. He said, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. So the disciples were with Jesus when he had said that to the Jews. He had said, I'm going someplace and you won't be able to follow me. But now Jesus says that very same thing to his own followers, to his disciples. I'm going someplace and where I'm going, you cannot follow me. And naturally, Peter, being Peter, can't just take that. He's got to follow up with that. He's got to, what do you mean, Jesus? And so in verse 36, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. So let me explain here what's going on. Jesus has said he's got to go someplace where they cannot go and follow him, but they will be able to follow him afterward. Now, do take note of follow me. He says, you're going to follow me. He doesn't say, I'm going to come back and I'm going to stay with you, which is the second coming of Christ, right? He's going to reign on earth for a thousand years. He says, instead, you're going to follow me. And then he goes into chapter 14 and says, so don't be troubled. And he tells them what he's going to do. In my father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to be, do you see that? And take you to be. He's not, I'm not going to come and stay with you. I'm going to come and take you. So Jesus' promise is this. I'm going away and I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's in my father's house and his father's house is in heaven. And I'm coming back to take you there not here. Do you see that? It's very clear. So Jesus has laid that out in his own words, that he is going to come back for them, but not to stay with them on earth, but to take them someplace else. Now that's Jesus' own words. Let's go to Paul's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Continue to make a right-hand turn in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All right. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll look at verses 51 to 55. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible man must put on incorruption, and this mortal man must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Now here's what's fascinating about this passage. Paul calls it a mystery. Do you see it in verse 51 there? He says, I'm going to tell you a mystery. A mystery is something hidden in the past, hidden in the Old Testament, but revealed in the new. This mystery of the rapture, many criticize because they say, oh, well, that didn't exist in the past, and it's only been recently discovered. Therefore, it can't really be you know, factual or true. Well, there are many mysteries in the New Testament. Uh, this is not the only one. Guess what one is? 
salvation. <laughs> it's called the mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy 3.16. It's a mystery as to how we all would be saved. Paul calls it such. The church is a mystery. The fact that Jew and Gentile would be brought together as one body, as one um, uh, unit, is called a mystery. Ephesians 3.3 tells us that. The indwelling presence of Christ in you is a New Testament mystery. Colossians 1.26, Paul calls all these things a mystery because they weren't revealed in the Old Testament, they're revealed in the New. And that is the same here. Here in 1 Corinthians, he addresses this as a mystery, something not taught me old, but revealed in the New. He says, I tell you a mystery. What's the mystery? We shall not all sleep. Now, the word sleep here is koimao. It's a New Testament euphemism for death. The English word cemetery is derived from this word. Christians actually were the first ones to bury, uh, bury people um, who were sleeping, right? And they got that cemetery word from there. But let me tell you, this is always used of bodies in the New Testament. It is never used of souls. Have you heard people talk about this soul sleep idea? Well, this word is never used of souls. It's always used of bodies 100% of the time in the New Testament because the body simply appeared to be asleep right? So it's a, a euphemism for death. There's no such thing as soul sleep. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So scripture tells us that if we're absent from our body, we're in the presence of the Lord. You're not somewhere else and your soul is taking a nap or hibernation. You are with the Lord. But what's his point here? His point here is this, that we won't all die physically. We won't all die physically. You say, well, that's strange. I thought everyone died physically. Well, we won't all die physically because some will still be alive at his coming. We won't all die physically, but we will all be changed physically. That's what he's saying here. Do you see that? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And the word changed here is alasso. It means to exchange one thing for another. It actually means an exchange or a transformation. That word is used seven times in the New Testament. It's used in Romans 1.23 of that exchange of worship. That worship is, is properly belongs to God, but man exchange it for the worship of created things. Do you remember that? So that's the idea here. We're going to exchange our lowly, corruptible bodies for an incorruptible one. Are you happy about that, that you can actually make a body exchange, right? You, can, you get to turn this thing in, right, for an upgrade, for a new one. But that's the idea. There's an exchange. So we won't all die, but you can guarantee we're all going to be changed. And when he says we, he's writing this letter to the, first, to the Corinthian church. So this is a church letter. So he's speaking to believers. We all will be changed. We'll exchange this body. And that's the next event that happens. It happens with the return of Jesus, as you'll see in the next passage that we'll look at. But notice the features of this event. Verse 52, in a moment it's going to happen, in the twinkling of an eye. So it's going to be a, a very fast uh, event. It'll happen at the last trumpet. So it's accompanied by a trumpet. In fact, we just sang a song about that. And then it says, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. This even gives us the order here. So the dead, those that were sleeping, will be raised incorruptible. And then we will, those that are alive, will be changed as well. So you have um, some of the features of the event, but how that's going to happen, all right? Dead believers and living believers, 
all will be changed, transformed. You're going to exchange this body for a new one. And then that's why he goes on to say, that's how that saying, death is swallowed up in victory, will be fulfilled. Do you see that in verse 54? That verse is fulfilled when believers take on their new um, bodies, their new glorified bodies. So there's Paul's version in 1 Corinthians 15, but he gives us another more detailed, specific one in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and that's where we'll rest here. Go, go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, keep going to the right, and you'll come to it. We're going to look at verses 13 to 18. All of that really is intro. <laughs> this is where we're really going to rest today, 1 Corinthians 4, 13 to 18. Let's just read through the passage here to begin with, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, you can see here, just by reading through this really quickly, that, that Paul is writing this to give comfort to the believers in, in Thessalonica, all right? Now, this is a church that's doing well. This, actually, this church was actually in the right uh, place uh, spiritually, mentally. They had the proper perspective of things in the face of persecution. And we know that they are being persecuted from chapter 3, verse 3. It says, no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. So this church is going through difficult times. They're suffering persecution, but they have the proper perspective. I want to show you their perspective. Go to chapter one of this book here in 1 Thessalonians, chapter one. I just want you to see where, where Paul has been directing their thoughts. Look at verse 9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Do you see that? Whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Their perspective has been, we're waiting for Jesus. We're waiting for him. That's their perspective. In chapter 2, verse 19, you have it again. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Why are they joyful? Why are they hoping? They're hoping for his coming. Yes. In chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ 
with all his saints. Now, that might be referring to the actual second coming of Christ, but my point here is this, is that they're looking for Jesus. That's their perspective in the midst of difficult times, in the midst of persecution. So that's their perspective. They're waiting for the Lord. They're anticipating his return. And even Paul uh, believed his return could be imminent. But what was their problem? Why is Paul writing to them? Well, look at verse 13 again. But I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. You have to think about this. Their concern was for those who have died. That word sleep is used again, koimao. They understood the idea that Jesus was going to return. They understood that just in terms of a big overall idea. Jesus is going to return and he's going to return for people. But then what about those who have already died? If Jesus is returning for his church, what happens to the ones that died? Did they miss out? This is their idea. They missed it. I mean, that's a bummer. And so Paul is writing to them to explain, no, 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 that's not how this works, right? You don't just hopefully live long enough to see Jesus, and if you don't, well, uh, too bad for you. He's writing to explain this to him. Oh, okay, I don't want you to sort of go on sorrowing meaninglessly as others don't, who don't have hope, because you do have hope. They do have hope. So he's writing to clarify the sequence of events. That's what he's trying to do here, to provide comfort for them. So he's teaching on the return of Christ for his church, and he's doing it in a specific way. And I want to show you just a few things here. There's four points that I'm going to make from this passage here. And the first is, it's the basis of his return. What's the basis of the return of Christ? It's found here in verse 14 in the first part of 15. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. So here's the basis of his return. The basis of his return and our resurrection to new bodies is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Do you see that? If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then that's why we know God's going to come and right, take us to be with him. That's the basis. Right? If, if someone comes to you and says, well, how do you know? How do you know you're going to have a new body? Oh, because Jesus died and rose again. Well, that's Jesus. That has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with you. Because Jesus died and rose again, he has that power. He has that power to give to you. You, you have new bodies coming to you. That's the basis, the confidence that you have. It's not in anything else. It's not because someone um, very clever told you about it, right, or found some deep dark, hidden truth. It's because Jesus died and rose for you. Because Jesus died and rose for you, you can have confidence in that. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22, Paul basically preaches on this. He says, now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. We went through that passage in detail last Easter. Christ is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, meaning much more fruit is going to come from his resurrection. You're going to be fruit. You are fruit, but you're going to have that fruit fully realized in your resurrected body because Jesus was resurrected. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 as well, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. 
So the basis of the, 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 the fact that we will have new bodies is on Jesus' own death and resurrection. But not just that. Did you notice that he added another thing in verse 15? Paul said, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. He says it's by the word of the Lord, by the testimony of Jesus himself. Paul is saying that it's direct revelation from the Lord. This is not, what you have to remember about Scripture, these men are, are carried along by the Holy Spirit, right, as they write. This is Holy Spirit inspired. I know people say, well, it's written by man. It is written by man, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it's written by the Holy Spirit, right? And being written by the Holy Spirit, Paul has received direct revelation from the Lord saying, this is how it's going to happen. And so we know that this is, oh, that's just not, that's just what Paul believed. Paul has written scripture. So this is not just what Paul has believed. This is what he's received from the Lord. This we say to you by the word of the Lord. Now, Jesus, when you read, you know, all the teaching of Jesus, he never explicitly referenced the rapture outside of John 14, outside of what we already looked at, which if you think about hadn't been written yet at this point, right? That's going to be written way later. But if you remember Paul's teaching on the rapture in uh, the first Corinthians passage, he called it a mystery, didn't he? That means it's something that was previously hidden, but now it's revealed. Well, it's revealed now because Jesus revealed it to him. So Paul is telling us how he got that news. It's from the Lord. It's directly from him. So the basis for our belief in our resurrection and his coming back for his saints is his own word, his own death, his own resurrection. It's nothing anyone else has said to you. It's nothing, it's no other revelation someone comes to you and gives you. It's his own word, his own death, his own resurrection. So that's the basis for your resurrection. But let's get into the meat. This is the stuff you want to hear now. The participants in the resurrection. Look at verse 15 again. So he says, this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So here's the, the, the participants in this resurrection. You have living believers, we who are alive and remain. And you have dead believers. We won't precede those who are asleep. So we saw that back in 1 Corinthians 15, right? Same thing. Living and dead believers, both. Do you remember that Jesus, when he was talking to Martha in John 11, verse 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me um, shall never die. Do you believe this? Right? He says, it's only those who believe in me. Those who believe in me experience that resurrection, that resurrection that gives life. And if you think back to John chapter 5, Jesus talked about two resurrections, didn't he? In fact, you'll need to turn there. John chapter 5. Keep your finger in 1 Thessalonians. We'll come back to it. But go to John chapter 5. Look at verse 28. This is very important. We'll have some more slides to go along with this because I want you to see how this all fits in. We didn't go this in depth when we went through John 5 in terms of adding slides and stuff because I wasn't so much focused on the, the end time full picture, but I did want you to understand the idea of the, uh, the resurrections. In fact, that sermon was titled, The Two Resurrections. Um, this is specifically speaking about here, these uh, resurrection of, of believers that... Um, that Paul is talking about in the Thessalonians passage, but I want you to see how it fits here in here with what Jesus said. In John chapter 5, verse 28, 
He said, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So you see those two resurrections are, are you know, mentioned there. Now, if you kind of go back to your, your, your chart there, if we're to just look at that number three, that second coming of Christ, and use that as a dividing point, divide everything in half from that point, okay? The resurrection of believers is on one side. The resurrection of unbelievers is on uh, the other side. I have a slide for you here. So here's what you have. Second coming of Christ, resurrection of believers, and then the resurrection of, of unbelievers. The resurrection of, of believers is called the resurrection of the just. It's called the resurrection of the just. And that's in Paul. Uh, Paul says that in Acts 24, 15. And Jesus says it in Luke uh, 14, uh, 14 as well. It's also called the resurrection of those who are Christ at his coming. Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 15, 23. It's known as the better resurrection in Hebrews eleven thirty five. 35. But Revelation calls it the first resurrection, the first resurrection. And that's in Revelation 20. I want to take you there really briefly. Revelation 20, all the way to the end of your Bibles there. We told you we're going to be taking you through your Bibles a bit today. Revelation 20, verse 4. Revelation 20, verse 4. So it's the resurrection of life. It's the resurrection of, of believers. And in verse 4, it says this, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Do you see that? So the first resurrection is the resurrection of believers before the thousand-year reign. That's why I marked the line there at the second coming. And then the resurrection of the rest of, of the unbelievers is after the thousand-year reign. Um, so that's called the resurrection of condemnation or the resurrection of the unjust. And that's a few verses later in chapter 20 of Revelation, if you're still there. In chapter 20, verse 13, it says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So you have the resurrection of believers, and you have the resurrection of unbelievers. And those are the two big categories that Jesus is talking about back in John chapter 5. He's just saying in a very general way, there's going to be two resurrections. And they happen, and this is what I want you to know, they happen at completely different times. Do you see that? They're separated by thousand years, all right? The resurrection of believers and then the resurrection of unbelievers after the thousand-year reign, even Revelation tells us that. But if you go back to that first resurrection, a few more slides, um, the, the Bible here tells us that that resurrection occurs in stages, all right? So here, if you hit the next slide, you have the church saints. Do you see that? So if we're looking at the pre-tribulational rapture, 
coming out of the church age, which is where we are now, the, re the resurrection of believers is going to happen first to the church saints, because we believe that the church will be taken um, away before the, the tribulational period. That's the church saints. But then you have some other saints that are going to be resurrected later. The Old Testament saints. We went through this when we went through Revelation. But the Old Testament saints, so all those who have died in the Old Testament, their souls are with the Lord, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But their bodies, their new resurrected bodies, come to them here, all right, in, when Jesus comes and returns. In addition to that, it's not just the Old Testament saints, but it's the tribulation saints. And we just read that in Revelation 20. Did you realize what was said there? He said, I saw these thrones. I said, he saw under the thrones were the souls of those who were beheaded, the souls of those who were beheaded during the tribulational period. And then it says, they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So John sees in heaven the souls of those who have died during the tribulation, that is, believers who place their faith and trust in Jesus during the tribulation, after the church has been taken, and then were martyred for their faith, they now, boom, live and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. That's going to happen at his second coming, because Jesus has got to come and defeat um, his enemies first. Does that make sense? So you have two giant resurrections, believers, unbelievers. But within the believers, it appears that they happen at stages. That's my whole point in, in showing you uh, this idea here. So Paul doesn't mention in his First Thessalonians passage, you can kind of go back there now, the resurrection of unbelievers, does he? He just mentions that um, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are falling asleep. Um, he's speaking about believers and only believers. He doesn't mention unbelievers. He doesn't mention judgment at all. And that's one of the characteristics here of the rapture passages. They have no hint of judgment. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you, the second coming of Christ, number three on your chart, is all about judgment. He is coming to judge. But the rapture passages are, are, don't have any hint of judgment. No judgment is mentioned. Second coming is all about it. You go to the final slide, um, that's where all the sinners, the, those that are unregenerated, will be um, resurrected, and they'll be resurrected just for the great white throne judgment, which we read in, in uh, chapter 20, verse 13. So the separation of those uh, events between those two resurrections is clear. It's the coming of Jesus when he comes to judge and then reign on, on earth. That's my point in, in showing you that. What Paul is talking about here is just focusing in on that first resurrection. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, and then those who are asleep as well. Do you see all that? So there's the participants there. Those are the participants. How about some of the features of his return? The features of his return. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Let's go through this slowly here. Let's look at all the features here. First, it says the Lord himself will descend. The Lord himself will descend. At the rapture, Christ comes for his saints. That's what the rapture is all about. He's coming for the church. At the second coming, he comes with the church. He comes with the saints. 
Revelation chapter 19 speaks about that. You can turn there really briefly. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 14. This is also the, the battle of Armageddon. This is all happening uh, there. But Revelation 19, verse 11 has a different white horse. Remember the white horse that comes? That's the Antichrist with the bow. Now that the judgments are over and Jesus comes to, to vanquish his enemies, he comes on a white horse. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. Why is he faithful and true? He's the true Christ. He's not the Antichrist that came on a white horse. This is the true Christ. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. That's judgment, right? That's judgment. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name that no one knew, uh, written on him that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses." Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the second coming of Christ. Number three on your, your chart there. And I want you to notice that he comes with the armies in heaven and that they're clothed in fine linen they're white and they are clean. Those are believers that have been redeemed, clothed, white, and we come with him. And so the big distinction between him coming for his church, the rapture, and coming at the second coming is that one, he comes to take his church, two, he comes back with his church. Does that make sense? So I want you to see also that he doesn't um, just um, send his angels to do it. He comes himself. Paul says that, <clears throat> verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend. The Lord himself will descend. In Matthew 24, verse 31, we have a contrast. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. In Matthew 24, you have a different perspective there that Jesus' angels are going out and he's gathering together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other so that he can return and judge. But here he is coming himself to personally gather his people. And isn't that what Jesus said in John 14? I will go and prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will return and take you to be with me. Not I'm going to send all my angels to do. I will come for you. And that's what we have here. If you think about Revelation 19, it doesn't mention anything about believers being caught up, um, which is the word hapratzo we'll look at in a minute, uh, or the resurrection of the dead believers, as do the rapture passages. It's separate. It's distinct. The Lord himself will descend. And where does he descend from? Heaven. From heaven. That's really important. That's super important, in fact. What's the last uh, picture the disciples had of Jesus? We just finished John. The last picture we have is, well, he was talking to Peter, right? And Peter's going, hey, what about this guy, John, <laughs> right? But we know more happened. We know that Jesus stayed with him until he did what? He ascended to heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 10. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, 
who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So they're looking up in the clouds, they're looking at Jesus, and they're saying, that's exactly how he's going to come. You're going to see him come in the exact same way. And that fulfills the promise of John 14, right? I'm going to go, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to take you to be with me. He comes from heaven to take us where? Back to earth? No, to take us to be with him. That's the whole point here. He comes from heaven to take us into heaven. And he comes with a shout. That word is kalusma. It's a command. It's an order. It's only used here in the New Testament, the only place. He orders us to come to him. It's a command. We have all kinds of commands and things we know we're supposed to do for a little while. We should love one another. We should love the Lord. Don't you love that command? Come. You better obey that one, folks. I'm just going to tell you, like, you don't want to miss that one. There is a command. There's a final command from the Lord, and it is come, and we all go. It is command. And his followers, his sheep, who hear his voice, who know his voice, will go. That's an amazing thing. So he comes from heaven, personally, with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. And that's interesting, because we don't know a lot about archangels, right? We do know that, that Michael is mentioned as an archangel in Jude uh, 9. It could be that an archangel joins Jesus to assist here. Uh, I think it's probably more the idea of his um, command, having that kind of authority in there. Michael is mentioned as uh, one of the uh, archangels in Daniel 12, a sign to protect Israel. So perhaps they're, they're presiding over this amazing event. In any case, you have this voice of an archangel, and then with the trumpet of God, the trumpet of God. Now, this is not... I want to make a distinction here, one of the trumpet judgments. It's not a trumpet judgment. This is the trumpet that calls us home. This is not a trumpet judgment. In fact, the bowls and the seals and the trumpets are all God's wrath being poured out upon the inhabitants of the earth. And every time you see the inhabitants of the earth in Revelation, after the church age, after chapter 3, it speaks of unbelievers. It's judgment upon unbelievers. Now, to be certain, people will place their faith and trust in Christ, but they're under the wrath of God because they're dwelling on earth. So it's those who will receive his wrath. These are not people receiving his wrath here in Paul's passage. He is coming with the trumpet of God. He's not coming to judge them. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Here you have the order again, just like he gave us back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, even though they're dead, they're still in Christ. I love that the dead in Christ will rise first. You dying and leaving this body doesn't mean you're no longer in Christ. You're always in Christ. The dead in Christ rise first. They go first, just like Paul described earlier. The souls of those uh, dead are present with the Lord, but now they're joined to the resurrected bodies in preparation for the millennial kingdom and his reign. So dead in Christ rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together uh, with them. That caught up word, we finally got to it, caught up is the word harpazo. So that's where we get this whole rapture word from. It comes from medieval Latin. Um, it partly was influenced by that word rapt, right? If you have, someone had your rapt attention, they had your full attention. They seized your attention, didn't they? They snatched your attention. That's the idea here. It's seized or snatched out or away. And that word stuck, raptura, rapture, is where we got uh, this from, from this phrase, caught up. And this word is used elsewhere in the New Testament. 
in Matthew eleven twelve. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. There's the word there. They snatch it by force. In Matthew 13, 19, he says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. And this is he who receives seed by the wayside. It's used again in John chapter 6, verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. My favorite place it's used is in John chapter 10, verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I like that because it's in that negative sense. You can't be snatched. You can't be snatched out of your father's hand, but guess what? You'll be snatched into Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You can't be snatched out of his hand, but you will be snatched away when you answer the call to come. Living Christians will be inst- instantly seized away. And in that snatching, we're instantly in the twinkling of an eye from, from Paul's passage earlier. We're transformed. We're given new glorified bodies. And that brings us back to that passage we looked at the beginning, Philippians 3.21, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. That's when we get it. 1 John as well, John, 1 John 3, 2 speaks of it. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When we see him, when he's revealed, yeah, that's what we're be, being snatched away to, to him. So when we see him, when we're with him, we become like him. That's an amazing thing. So we know that that all happens uh, together. And where does it happen? Then we who are alive and remain, verse 17, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, There's just no way around it. It doesn't get any more clear. Jesus doesn't descend to earth. We go to him, which is what he said he would do. I'll come and I'll take you to be with me. But at the second coming, he comes to earth. And that is Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14 is a second coming passage. It's a famous passage. Zechariah 14.4. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall be moved toward the north, half toward the south north-south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. That is a second coming passage. Jesus' feet come to earth, and who comes with him? All the saints. You bet. You bet. But what does Paul say here? We're going to meet him in the air, in the clouds, you ever been in a plane? No, you've been, been in planes now, most of you? When you fly through the clouds, does, does your mind go here? Yeah. I, my mind always goes here. I start going through the clouds. I'm like, wow, we're going we're gonna to be with Jesus in the clouds, but I won't be in a plane. <laughs> like, that's going to be crazy. <laughs> like, what's underneath me here? Right? It's just going to be wild. And so we, we go to him. We meet him in the air. So those are the features that we see. But let me give you the benefits. Why does Paul write all of this to begin with? Two benefits I want you to take from this, and they're found in verse, uh, the rest of ver- uh, chapter se- verse 17 and, and 18. Very, very end of 17. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Hallelujah. 
and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Here's my point, folks. We're called to wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we're not called to wait for anything more because guess what? That is it. You are forever with the Lord. And yes, there are further events on the end time chart that I've given you, this piece of paper, but you're with the Lord. And that's all that you really need to think about. Yes, you'll be with him in heaven. Yes, you'll come and reign with him on earth. And yes, you'll be in the new heaven and the new earth. But the point is, you'll be with him. He is your inheritance. That is what we look forward to. Turn to Revelation um, chapter 22. Well, as you turn there, I'm going to give you another benefit as well. This is just such a wonderful passage, right? The last book of the Bible, the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, the first five verses. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. That is your eternity. We will always be with the Lord. Definitely a major benefit. I do want to pull another one out of here as we look at this um, and as I, uh, as I close up. <clears throat> We've compared this text to some of the other texts that regard Jesus' second coming there. And I believe these, these comparisons help us to understand the best place for the rapture being here at the beginning of the tribulation period, um, meaning Christ removes us before that seven-year period of judgment. And there's another passage in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, that speaks of that, that I think is another benefit. And it's Revelation 3.10. Because you've kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Because when you read Revelation, it's a frightening book. Uh, there are horrific things that will take place upon the earth. But this letter to the, the churches here, Revelation 3.10, seems to mention that one of the benefits for us is that we avoid that hour of trial. Notice he says hour of trial. That means it's a limited time, like Daniel's 70th week, right? It's a limited time. And the hour of trial shall come upon the earth, meaning it's still yet future. There are some people who will try to tell you we're in it. Revelation says it will come. It will come because we're still in the church age, aren't we? Yeah, I think so. So it will come upon the whole world, upon the whole world. It'll be worldwide. It won't be a specifically designated regions of the world. It will affect the whole entire world, and it will come to the world to test those who dwell upon the earth. And as I mentioned, that is a phrase that's used for the unbelievers upon the world here. So the judgments of this seven-year period upon the inhabitants of the earth in Revelation refers to those, those unbelievers, those who are not part of the church, um, but they're not for the believers. We're taken out of the world prior to them. And I think that's, 
That's a benefit for us. But also, one more thing, and that is in verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. These words of Paul provided an added comforting benefit to the the church there in in Thessalonica. They, they, They were sorrowing because they thought those who had fallen asleep, those who had died before his return were missing out. They weren't sure how that was going to be. I mean, that's after all when he comes and starts handing out the new bodies and they'll miss it. He says, that's not how it's going to happen. Our God's bigger than that. And so when we understand properly um, these sequence of events and what we're to be waiting for is the coming of Jesus to take his church, it provides comfort. When I listen to people on the radio and I see people on TV trying to sell tribulation survival kits, it doesn't provide comfort, does it? But Paul says you're supposed to comfort one another with these words. That's not a comfort. Like, well, I hope this gets you through. I'm like, what is that? Church, don't be deceived by those things. We're waiting for the coming of Jesus to take us to be with him where we will get new bodies. Are you happy about that? Amen. I am too. So praise be to God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you give us these truths that you revealed to Paul, the mystery that was indeed hidden before in the Old Testament, but's now revealed to us so that we could be comforted, that we could know that what we're expecting and what we're waiting for, the hope that we're to have is seeing you, that you're coming for your church. You've gone to prepare a place for us. You're coming to take us to be with you. And Lord, may we long to be with you. Lord, forgive us for times we long for the things of this world more than longing to be with you. You are our inheritance. And we look forward to that day when we will hear your glorious command to come. And Lord, may we come. (laughs) Lord, may your sheep obey your voice. Help us to be faithful to you and true to you, to be watchful, to be prayerful as we're called to do, and help us not to be distracted by the other things of the world. And maybe too caught up in the other end time events. We won't even care about those things because we'll be with you. So God, just keep us within your presence. Keep us close. God, we love you. We praise you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.